I'm Michael Weber, Artistic Director of Chicago's Porchlight Music Theater. Welcome to the Movie Musical Monday podcast. This series of recorded conversations explores all our favorite film musicals, from Broadway adaptations to Hollywood originals, as our rotating host and guest conversationalists open a discussion in which you are invited to participate. Today's movie musical is the 2001 film Moulin Rouge, which went on to an Today's movie musical is the 2001 film Moulin Rouge, which went on to inspire the 2019 Broadway version that received a total of 14 Tony Award nominations and won 10 awards, the most that season, including Best Musical. Here is your host, Porchlight Producing Artistic Associate Frankie Leo Bennett, and his guest, actor Darylin Bertley, heading up the conversation. All right. Hello, everyone. It's been like forever since I've been in a Monday conversation, but I'm so happy to see so many wonderful returning faces and some new ones along the way. And Darylin, I'm so thrilled to share this conversation with you today about the 2001 hit film Moulin Rouge. 2001. I didn't look at the date. Wow. 2001. Okay. <laughs> Yes. Um, and I, I, we won't play how old anyone was when that film came out. But um, 2001, Moulin Rouge comes out. It is the winner of the Golden Globe for Best Picture, but it is also the first musical in about a decade that has been nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. So it has been um, perceived as one of the films, and like the last film I talked about, Chicago, as redefining the movie musical for a contemporary audience. It ushered in a new wave of movie musicals for the thousands. Um, so Darylin, what was your first experience watching this film? I watched it when I was a kid and I just remember thinking it was so glamorous and the luxury in it, the opulence in it, I was very attracted to. Um, I didn't know a lot of those songs back then because I grew up listening to like pretty much only gospel. Um, but I liked the songs. I liked the way things tied in, but I didn't quite understand the story. Rewatching it, I have a totally different take on it because I guess being an adult, it, it hits a little differently. Um, but I just thought it was gorgeous. Like visually, I, I thought it was amazing. It's, it's funny you say gorgeous and opulent. And what's funny is that you didn't necessarily relate to the songs, but um, Moulin Rouge is considered part of this unofficial trilogy of Baz Luhrmann's um, called the Red Curtain Trilogy. And it's essentially his love letter to different styles of performance while combining it with his own cinematic technique and prowess. And so the first one was Strictly Ballroom, um, which was his most critically acclaimed out of the, out of the three, but as we know, critical acclaim doesn't necessarily amount to popularity. Um, the next one was Romeo plus Juliet. Um, and then, of course, the third one to cap it all out was Moulin Rouge. And so Strictly Ballroom was dance plus cinema. Um, Romeo plus Juliet was text plus cinema. But then we get to Moulin Rouge, which was music plus cinema. And um, what's what was really fascinating is what do we do when we take a, a, a historical French concept like the Moulin Rouge? And what are those emotions with the MTV generation? Um, and so that's that was the blend that came of it, plus his own style of it. And I distinctly remember as a kid watching it, I loathed this movie. I could not get through it. Um, and I distinctly remember because the first 20 minutes of it are so lermony that I couldn't focus to save my life. And I didn't get as far, I got about as far as the can-can uh, beginning and that was it. 
Um, did anyone else have any other like wonderful experiences on, at first take or were you also thrown off by the cinematic pace of it? Mindy? I didn't have a great experience. I, I need to rewatch it. And I was, I was telling my dad, I think um, I just had a shingles vaccine and I was feeling really sick. And so the, all the, the colors and the flashing was making me dizzy and a little ill. So I turned it off. So I, I, I'm here to hear why I should give it another chance. <laughs> All right, gang, we, we have about 50 minutes to make you. Favor, so here we go. <laughs> Anyone else want to share their like first take? Uh, Florine. Okay, we had that same experience in the beginning. You know, we thought, what? I mean, it was just too much. But we said, <laughs> we're going to stick with it. So we stuck with it and gradually... We could, we could, you know, we got it. We understood and, and saw it was so complex. But um, um, we were glad we stuck with it because it was fantastic all around. And not just the visual. We're talking about everything. It was, it was um, beautifully done. Of course, the music, the costumes, everything. But the history and all the details, it was just unbelievable. Ken, go ahead. Yeah, I I really liked it. I actually thought it was interesting. It was sort of like a, a Hamilton kind of uh, artistic choice uh, before Hamilton in that, you know, when you're a kid and you think of that time period, you think of all these old people and what did they know? And uh, yeah, there's this art that you can look at, that sort of thing. But by having the, at that point, contemporary music into something that's supposed to be happening in 1899, and you see them just really enjoying themselves, you can see how it would have been cutting edge and kind of revolutionary for that time period. So I, I thought it was really good that way when, when you first see Santine come down on the chair and then she starts singing Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. It really throws you for a loop, but it also kind of uh, is appropriate if you ignore the anachronism uh, about who she is and what she represents. Sure. Chris, take it away. Um, everybody who knows me, which is many of you, will get a chuckle out of this. Um, I first saw it on a date and I understood that they used Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, but I didn't realize that all the other songs were pre-existing until we got to Like a Virgin and I said, wait, this is a Madonna song. And my date was like, yeah, Chris, these are all pre-existing songs. And I was like, oh, that's clever. But it like obviously went over my head. And so I don't know if that helped or hurt, but I fell in love with the movie Hook, Line, and Sinker. And um, when it moved to the cheap seats, uh, we had like a second run movie theater where like tickets were a lot cheaper, where things would go after their initial run. And I went back to the of the cheap seats like once a week for a month. Um, so I was a huge fan and have subsequently broadened my uh, musical uh, pop music uh, history knowledge. Now two pop jukebox musicals that Chris Pazernick signs off on, ladies and gentlemen. And if, if you don't know this, Chris... Does not do this on a <laughs> So uh, Chuck and Diane, go ahead. 
At the beginning, when they're playing Sound of Music, I thought I had the wrong movie. And, and then I had never seen this. We both missed it. Neither of us saw it. And then Nature Boy. I happen to know Nature Boy pretty well from the 40s. That's how old I said, what kind of a movie is this? So first I thought it was a satire. Then I thought, am I watching Camille? Or is this La Traviata? Or what's going on? At first, I kind of feel like, Mindy, it was a jumble. It didn't make me dizzy, and it was confusing, but overall, it was pretty good. But I'd like people to explain to me, what exactly was it? Was it intended to be a satire, or was it intended to be what? That's a marvelous question. And Lerman has talked about it in terms of it being a take on um, Orpheus and Eurydice, of course, um, that essentially the, you know, the uh, with uh, Christian being the savior of it. But, you know, when he find, when she can finally escape, does she escape? And of course, we all know that um, it's spoiler alert if you haven't watched the movie is that, you know, she succumbs to this illness at the final peak moment where she can finally escape. And essentially the whole Moulin Rouge itself um, succumbs um, at, you know, when it's finally at its bright, best and brightest moment, um, you know, but, and it also has blends of La Boheme and, and, um, and other operatic works throughout it. So it is a real question of, was this, was this homage? Was this, was it trying to make a comment about what those stories were saying? Um, Darylin, um, is there, you were talking too about, you know, um, I, remind me again, what your thoughts on the story were. Watching it as a child before I had life experience, I loved it. I thought it was very romantic and um, kind of uh, boy meets girl saves her from her um, struggle. As an adult, I don't love the unoriginal kind of reinforcing of stereotypes about women like Satine. You know, why did she have to be broken? Why does she have to be miserable? Why does she have to get sick? Why does she have to choose between money and a, mon um, a, a, a filthy rich person who's pretty monstrous towards her or a guy who can offer nothing but poems and no real stability in life? I'm just kind of like saying that before and then she dies. So I'm kind of yeah. like, yeah. I kind of, I've kind of seen that a lot of times, but this time she wasn't in a dumpster. So that's nice. Um, so as far as the story, I rewatched it over the weekend. I'm still unpacking the story. Um, I feel bad for Satine, I guess, out of, out of everything. Maybe she didn't know her options or, um, but I feel like as a kid, I thought that Christian was like the protagonist and the hero and going back to an adult woman, I feel like he was maybe just as entitled to her as the Duke was. So that's my take on it. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Art, go ahead. My problem with it is, you know, you could follow the, the story. I mean, there's a, there's a meaningful story there, but it's so overwhelmed by all the effects that are going on that it's sort of hard to appreciate both at the same time. Either get into the story or you get into the effects. And for me, and watch it, what it reminded me, and I didn't like it the first time I saw it, and I watched I didn't get through it the whole thing this time, but I got through enough of it. Um, and, and watching it this time, it reminded me of, of, uh, of, of a lesser experience than when I, in person, going to see Teatro Zinzani. Sure. Where at least I got a good meal and, and some personal interaction. Sure, absolutely. What I always took from the the story, at least now that I've rewatched it as an adult, was that I think... Uh, what I feel, and I, I would be hard pressed for him not to say it, was that 
he didn't care about the story. He picked one of the basic archetypal love stories of all time from Grecian roots so that you don't focus on the story. You, and I don't even think uh, he wants you to focus on the text is what my sensation with Moulin Rouge is, is that he actually wants you to focus on the underlying music of it and what how can music manipulate us emotionally? And um, just because I, if, if it is part of this trilogy that he's stated is that Romeo plus Juliet was the text. That was, that was the goal of that with this, because there's so many effects and dazzling and whatnot. It's, it's relying on the ear and the eye to evoke emotion. Even if you don't, you know, I, I feel this way when I hear the song, like a virgin, I feel this way when I hear any part of elephant love medley is that it's essentially, I feel like, almost like a contemporary William Castle film in which you're going like, oh, I, I have to suddenly feel like I'm in love. I suddenly have to feel like I'm in pain. And so um, it's, it's, I think it's, I think Moulin Rouge to me is not necessarily a film in a narrative sense. It's, a, it's essentially an emotional experience. It's a spectacle. Um, and uh, the stage version um, capitalizes that on that, but we can chat about that any uh, more. Um, Ken, go ahead. Yeah, I, I would agree with a lot of that, but I also think that it's kind of a meditation on the nature of uh, storytelling. I, I think there's a lot that even the very beginning, when you have the guy who becomes the music director, who is leading the orchestra in a movie theater, and the curtain parts, and you have the uh, 20th century Fox fanfare. So it's a movie within a movie. And the people in the movie are putting on this play, which represents the same uh, themes that are in the movie it itself. And I think part of it ha ha is this, the nature of storytelling that you can have something that's clearly fake, including Paris and, uh, you know, all, all those things and clearly melodrama and still get emotion out of it. So I think he was going for a little of that as well as music and dance and editing and all those other things together. Sure. Darylin, is there any particular musical sequence or medley or even just song in this that you feel that you're attracted to in a specific way or is like the Moulin Rouge moment for you? Um, yes, I, I there is. I was actually thinking about it just now. Um, the Roxanne scene, I think they're doing it, it's like the scene where the Duke is attacking her in private and then the other dancer they're they're doing rehearsal and I think that's the tango, like a group number tango. I was just like the song and the and the lyrics of the song and it's it's almost like she was being consumed and you can see the beginning of the dance. It's like she likes it. And as the scene with Satine and the Duke builds, it does as well with the with the group tango scene, I just think it was a beautiful blend. Very, very moving. Yes, I, I agree. That's one of the most powerful sequences in the film. One of the most oft referenced in it, just because it essentially combines all of the elements together in this particular moment. And it, it at a particularly painful moment in the story. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's extremely effective. Mindy, go ahead. I was wondering what you could tell us about the choreography, because I can't imagine 
putting that together um, where you have so many performers all on top of each other, but still working in, in sequence. What, do you know what went on with that? How it was put you know, together? I, I have to say that there's actually not much particularly about the specific choreography in this particular film, but I would also say what's fascinating is the cinematic choreography, is that where we have other dance-centric films, um, you know, Hairspray, Singing in the Rain, where the camera is specifically focused on what, or, you know, even Hello, Dolly is where the camera is specifically focused on what story the body is telling. And while I don't think Moulin Rouge is necessarily lacking in that, it's more about what the camera is doing to manipulate the body and how we are perceiving it. So any, and particularly, again, in that first 20 minutes, as we get through the um, uh, Ziedler's entrance all the way up to the sparkling diamond sequence, is that I don't get a sense of bodily choreography I get a sense of like emotional choreography mental choreography um in terms of that so I don't necessarily while dance is important in the story because it is still a musical I think we were looking at it through a very warped lens on purpose oh uh Michael go ahead I remember thinking when I when I saw it originally, I was so frustrated with the fact that there were so very few occasions when the camera would pull back and allow you to see choreography. And I remember it jumping out at me very much and remembering. And again, it's not it's not to compare or to say one thing is right or wrong, but I remember specifically thinking how when you watch Fred Astaire, he was emphatic that he was always filmed full body and with very little, with very few cuts so that you understood the actors, the dancers artistry and that the camera was not getting between his connection with the audience. And I think really to your point, which is to say, it was almost as though the, the director was saying the choreography isn't what you should be paying attention to, that they're dancing and they're choreographed to do dances that have been, have been choreographed, but I don't want you paying attention to that. I want control over you. It's the director's connection to the audience, which very much is also the difference between film and stage anyway, that film is definitely a director and more than that, even the editor's medium, whereas stage is really more the actor's medium because that's who is directly connecting. But I remember being very frustrated with it and wanting more but never really realizing and taking the time to think, well, what was really happening here? What what did they want me to experience versus what I hoped to experience? Absolutely. No, I agree with that. Uh, James. I, I was just going to um, sort of vibe off of what Michael said, because that I felt the same way, because my favorite number is the uh, Hindi said diamonds number where everyone's on stage. I only speak the truth. But you keep going to these scenes of like you and McGregor walking around backstage or what's going on. And it's like, just show me what's happening on stage. I don't care about like these intrigues that are going on over there. Um, and I think it's weird because Baz Luhrmann did uh, Strictly Ballroom. So you'd think that, that he'd like know how to shoot a dance number, but it was, I think what Michael said is like almost a control over us and I'm gonna tell you what's important. And for me to show you four minutes of this whole dance is not important. It's important to see um, him walking around backstage. Sure. Chris. Just, um. Two things that I actually go back a little bit in the conversation, but I think also speak to the choreography. Um, one of his major influences on the movie that no one's mentioned yet was um, Bollywood films. Yeah. 
And I, so when you start imagining through that lens, he was essentially trying to translate a Bollywood movie into Western cinema. And in doing so, wanted to give people in a contemporary vernacular what it would, would it have been like, um, to the point about Teatro Zinzani, to have actually been at the Moulin Rouge in 1899. So he's, I think, pulling from a lot of, as people have noted, varied cinematic sources and narrative sources, all to combine to try and create in the vocabulary of 100 years later what the Moulin Rouge was like. And I think Michael's point about how he filmed the choreography speaks to both the Bollywood influence and his desire to try and make you feel that petty, discombobulated sensation at the Moulin Rouge. And um, to Mindy's question, I I remember, uh, I couldn't find it now, Mindy, but I remember watching a... Uh, a special on the making of the movie when it came out. And I was really surprised to learn, and I probably shouldn't have been, but that especially dances in a movie are rehearsed very much like we do for a stage production. They just only ever get performed on the day of filming, but that they had like two months of rehearsals planning all that out before it was actually filmed, which I thought was cool. We're going to put a quick or a little bookmark on Bollywood because it also speaks to the tonal variety in the film as well. But Ken, did you have a thought you want to share? Yeah, I, I agree with uh, Chris. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I, what I was thinking about was, um, oh, a while ago, there was this idea of uh, these uh, kind of signature uh, stores where they you walk in and there'd just be music and lights and dark areas and stuff like that. And it was like exactly the opposite of come in and make a rational decision as to what you're going to buy. It was just about excitement. And for some people, it was very discombobulating to walk into one of those, like the Nike store when it first opened and that sort of thing. And I I agree with Chris. I think it was supposed to be, I'm going to so overwhelm you that you're going to feel the same thing that somebody who walked into the Moulin Rouge would feel, which would not be sitting there quietly and enjoying the choreography. Absolutely. And I I can sense that Roger Ebert actually wrote in his review of the film that essentially he was talking about his own experience about a time that he went and got absolute back of the whole space, you know, cheap tickets to the Moulin Rouge. And that that is it's the Moulin Rouge of the mind. You know, it's the Moulin Rouge that, you know, you see as a young college person that like, you know, you may not be able to see everything. And by the, and he says in his review, by the time you're able to afford the good seats of the Moulin Rouge, you've lost that sense of wonderment and experimentation and, and wanting to be a part of it. And so it was just like, so what was the Moulin Rouge in the back of the room? So it's essentially taking everyone who was in the back in the cheap seats and pushing them into the action um, is what he felt about the film. And Bollywood also as a reference is that uh, Lerman talks about the fact that as he was doing research for uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, that you know he he stumbled into you know a Bollywood film, and that it was essentially how uncool everyone could be at once. That they were all in this moment together in a musical film that had weird edits and jumps, and the story was convoluted, but it was a story everybody knew, and that he wanted to replicate 
how do we all become uncool again? And it was by taking all of the music that was so popular and putting it into a musical. So does anyone else have any other sequences in particular that stand out as like the quintessential Moulin Rouge moment? Like the one that has made Sidetrack a popular attraction for, you know, uh, the better part of over 30 years, except that movie's only been out for 20 of it, is the Elephant Love Medley in particular is one sequence that I, I think is the, I remember as a high schooler, that was the song that you had your Satine and you had your Christian and you sang through and you powered through that, even though you had no idea where, where these songs came from. You know, I think even still now I go, oh, Oh, yeah, it's that song. Um, <laughs> Chris, don't you dare. <laughs> so uh, has anyone actually been able to see the stage version of Moulin Rouge? Amanda, did you? Well, I I was in Paris once and I saw a play at the Moulin Rouge. Okay. So, so talk about that experience comparable to the film. Obviously, they didn't have Nirvana and uh, Madonna playing, but... Yeah, well, okay. So full disclosure, I watched all that jazz because I missed the email. But I have seen Mulan <laughs> like years ago. And and then I saw the, the musical. It wasn't even a play in, in Paris at the Moulin Rouge. But all I remember from that show was I don't remember the story. I barely remember the songs. I remember some kicking and then just amazing costumes and like just so much sparkle I was surrounded by this like extravagance. And if I remember, I got that same sort of feeling from the movie, um, even though when I watched it, it was on a laptop screen. So it wasn't as all encompassing. But I remember feeling a, a similarity between the the vibe. But yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all good. <laughs> uh, James, and you can bounce off of this because you actually saw it in person. Um, but and I'll put up Boz's letter that is actually posted on the stage versions website um, about, you know, the reinvention and, and the interpretation of it. Um, but what the stage version faced as an issue or a blessing in its reinvention was the fact that you don't have the camera as your lens. You lose that central focus as your eye and you've lost the director's control of manipulating what you're seeing. Um, so how did they combat that issue was they added a plethora more of songs. And it was also the combination too of the fact that they were able to get the clearance rights for so many more songs since the film had been out. Um, it, I, I believe it was the Rolling Stones were adamant not to let the them use that uh, use any of their music in it but then years later they went oh moulin rouge you mean that hit movie great now the dukes are completely underscored by all rolling stones music what are your thoughts about the stage version james i don't know if it's because i'm 20 years older than when i saw the movie but the whole time i was just like this is very loud <laughs> and it was one of those things where it almost becomes um less about the show because every time they would go into a new number you would hear the audience giggle because they're like oh that's so funny because i know this song like they were working in different songs even more modern up to whatever was last year so it was one of those things that i love the movie and i watch the movie whenever i can if i see it as i'm flipping through channels i'll watch the entire thing but for this i felt and it could be that there was such a disconnect because there was so much going on because people are literally like walking around in front of the stage. They have sides that are people are going on. So there's something going on, but um, it wasn't the same experience as seeing the movie. Sure. 
and and we will eventually have it as michael pointed out um in 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 a very soon hopefully future um and i know it will be in chicago for an extended length um which will be exciting to finally have the opportunity to compare it um is is also what i found in listening to the film soundtrack versus the musical soundtrack was the idea of now we had to focus on text. Now we had to focus on dance. Now we actually had to focus on these stage pictures. So what does it do to this story and, and how it manipulated it? And so I encourage all of you, if you haven't listened um, to the musical version, the stage version of it, um, and compare it, particularly Elephant Love Medley, which I felt was always this like tight, very, the, the motions bounce back and forth. You know exactly where you're at. They had to extend it just because we didn't have the camera work. We weren't being emotionally manipulated in the way that the film did. And now we have to actually like listen to people talk for two and a half hours. So yes, Darlin. Hi, so I am obsessed with the musical version of it. I didn't listen to the actual movie's soundtrack for, mm-hmm. for years, fell in love with the cast recording. I'm in love with it, their voices, and honestly, the song selection, I think, for the musical, I'm so excited for the opportunity to see it and maybe be in it one day. Mm-hmm. But I think that if you like the movie and you like those songs and you like those performances, I would also second that. I would recommend that you listen to the musical. It's phenomenal. Yes, and particularly act two or um, act two in the stage version in the second half of the film essentially is where I personally feel it kind of, I've been meaning to say that this feels like the the cinema's answer to like the concept musical, but I feel like it loses its wheels as we have to wrap up this story. Um, And in particular, once we get past like a virgin is that we kind of just have to end the thing and it just goes back into such a traditional narrative at that point that i'm just like so am i listening to the story am i what am i what am i so as blurry as the first 20 minutes are we kind of just get to the bitter end and then you just it, you know kind of go well someone shoots someone <laughs> you know we just need this thing <laughs> to end um so michael one, one thing that struck me about this film um, was that it had a moment within at least the, the commercial that they would put out that was sort of became so iconic. And it was that that moment where she's swinging around the audience. Sure. And you go, you know, there are that sometimes happens with musicals that that there is something about them. It might be the way that you can see a picture of of Yule Brenner and you'll know exactly he's in the costume, he's in the pose. You'll you'll see a picture of Mary Martin in the sailor suit and you know exactly what that show is. And this was one of those pieces I thought that that it sometimes happens with musicals that there's a piece of video that for the next 50 years, all they need to show is that piece of video and we're going to know exactly what it is. And that's something that is rarely achievable, but was achievable with this film, that everybody got excited by that one little bit of video of her swinging over the audience, which I thought yeah. was pretty remarkable. We and all you, look for those. Yes. I, I, I always try to watch the trailers for movie musicals that aren't blatantly movie musicals. Um, and I didn't watch it for Moulin Rouge in particular because I'd be curious about how marketed it was as like a musical um because there's always that fear that if you tell people they're seeing a musical they're not going to want to watch it so but you know what what was it at that point that people were actually watching so i that's a little bit of homework for me um but of course i think one of the most iconic moments in the film that is again only a sliver of it but it almost outlives the film is that epic artistic mashup of Lady Marmalade that happened. Um, We had Christina Aguilera, we had Little Kim, we had uh, Maya, we had Pink, and it was just that 
particular music video to me was Moulin Rouge for ages before I even like really got into it. Does anyone else have comments about that particular number? Um, honestly, as, as a little girl, I probably, I didn't know what the song meant, but but it was one of my favorites. I thought the video was so glamorous, all these powerhouse, strong female performers. Um, To this day, I thought you meant like a specific scene in the, in the movie, but even just for the promo, for the soundtrack, Lady Marmalade, hands down. Anytime I see four women posed in what looks like a throwback vintage lingerie, I'm just like, it's going down. Where are the fishnets? It's amazing. So I would say the Lady Marmalade music video for me is definitely the standout. Yeah. And the stage version, I think, capitalized on that was that what was what was everyone's reaction? The audience that saw it either younger or, you know, at that moment where they were processing what was it, um, mm-hmm. that is the new opening number of the stage version. And they went, okay, great. This is the Moulin Rouge that you know, or that you know, and now we're reinventing again. Uh, Jeannie. I just wanted to talk about some of the performances. We've talked so much about like, you know, uh, big scenes and, um, you know, John Liquizamo, how amazing is he in this? So hilarious. The four guys, you know, there's like crawling up the elf, you know, I'm just, I love Baz Luhrmann. I love, I love his ability to, I love a good like cityscape aerial view. And there's just so many of them in this movie. Um, and a good rooftop scene and then his ability to like really zero in on the intimate moments, you, you know, and that kind of back and forth is great. Jim Broadbent. I mean, you know, just some powerhouse performances. Sure. Absolutely. I, I see him sassily shaking his head. No, Chris, did you have a thought? Well, first, I'm just going to agree with Daryl Um I was in high school at the time and Lady Marmalade became like the song of the summer of the year. And I remember feeling like it was one of the first times that like something I was interested in crossed over into pop culture. Um, And of course I didn't know it was a cover until much later. Um, So I was just going to second Darylin's vote for Lady Marmalade. And to Jeannie's point, of course, me, I'm obsessed with Caroline O'Connor. She plays Mimi, the dancer who dances the tango that Darylin mentioned earlier. Um, For anyone who doesn't know, she's a huge music theater star um, in the UK and Australia. Not as well known here, but she... um, has works a lot stateside. She was in um, Follies at Chicago Shakes, Christmas Story on Broadway, a number of shows at Milwaukee Rep, and right before the shutdown happened in Teatro Zinzani at uh, right in downtown Chicago. A, a, a comparison which I made on her Instagram, and she likes it. So there's my story. <laughs> A match made for the ages, of course. Um, so talking about our two leads, um, you know, Ian McGregor and Nicole Kidman, um, I, there's always that debate about, you know, why are we putting people who we don't know as vocalists into these lead roles? In um, And in particular, Daryl, do you have any thoughts about those two leading this love story? Um, I think they're great actors. I really appreciate the authenticity that they brought to the characters. I think as a vocalist, there were times I was distracted. There were times I thought I sat back and thought, 
I remember them sounding better as a kid. And that's just, that's literally like, I had those kind of moments watching it. Um, I think they're both very talented actors, but sometimes it can be a little distracting, especially since I've been jamming out to the Broadway version of, of, uh, of Moulin Rouge and they're just, you know, crushing it. So to go back to listen to the original, it was cute. They're both popular at the time. They're both both very talented actors. Um, I would have maybe liked to have seen other people that were great actors and also strong vocalists. Um, but we got what we got, and most of the world liked it, obviously. So, sure. um, some other fun tidbits of people who were in consideration for um, the Christian track were Jake Gyllenhaal, Heath Ledger, and um, one of the more infamous stories was Leo DiCaprio, um, fresh off his success with uh, Romeo plus Juliet. Um, but they got about one meeting in and um, I can't remember the song he sang in the anecdote, but um, I believe that they politely turned to him and said, we don't believe this conversation should move any further. So while the vocals were not perhaps as polished with Kidman and McGregor, there was someone worse. <laughs> uh, Mindy, go ahead. Um, first, uh, a question for Daryl, and uh, I'm not a vocalist, so when you say distracted, what do you hear that I don't hear? Um, I would say certain aspects of their tone or their delivery. I can maybe hear when they're straining or when they don't have the breath support to carry something out. Uh, there's a difference between singing like hitting the note, there were most of the time they were hitting the notes. They did a good job of hitting the notes. But when it comes to timbre, texture, like if I sing do, I can go do or do. And it's the same note, but it's just tone quality is a little different. You know, does that make sense? It did. No, yeah, that helped. Yeah, thank you. And a, a real comment about since I only watched about 40 minutes in, does Nicole Kidman get better? Because I, I'm back and forth with her as an actress, and I thought all that sort of, oh my God, and the fawning, and the, da, da, da. I mean, I'm sure that was part of the, the way she was directed, but it just maybe it was my vaccine. I don't know. It just was bothersome. <laughs> I think towards the end, I. I think she evens out in the beginning, the first 40 minutes, she's definitely playing the role of the courtesan. Towards the towards the end, you start seeing more humanity in her, more softness, more subtlety. Um, but she's still a pretty extravagant character, I would say. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Anyone else have other um, detracting or um, entrancing performance notes? It wasn't distracting for me, but I know once I saw the movie and I was ecstatic and I got the uh, compact disc and I was playing it. And then when it was released like on cable, I know my uh, family, I was living in Connecticut. Most of them were in Chicago. Um, all four of my sisters, I called and said, I can't watch this movie. Like they couldn't get over the way it was directed and the first 20 minutes and just the fast pace and just people's faces popping up. And they're like, how could you like this? How could you like this? We couldn't even give, it was giving us headaches. And I was just like, yeah, I guess a lot of people are like that, but it was, and I think there's a difference between seeing it on the big screen where it's all like visual treats and then having it reduced to a smaller screen where it just might seem more intense because none of them, and years later, my other sister did eventually say, hey, I finally watched it and it's pretty good. Yeah, I, and, that, and I think that's probably where my issue lied with it for so many years um, was that I had only ever seen it on TV or on a small screen is that then that was definitely not where it was intended to be. And I think that it, it, it's pretty, we hear particularly we hear, you know, Christopher Nolan, we hear all these names where it's like these films are built to be seen on the screen. And it was, I would say, 
out of all of the contemporary movie musicals in the past 20 years, one that pretty much demanded to be seen in a theater. Um, every, you know, and um, in August, I agree too, is that it's, it's one of those things where it just goes, are we getting the full experience with it? But even this weekend, the scene that thoroughly surprised me the most, because I must've blacked it out, was Like a Virgin. Um, for some reason, I thought I found a special edition version on HBO Max and was like, this must've been a deleted scene. It is, and if you know me, well, that's one of the most musical theatery numbers in the whole the whole shebang that is traditional music theater. And I missed it in particular. And I just think it speaks to um, Richard Roxburgh doing this. This Duke is one of these like images that gets burned in your mind uh, after you see the film, too, is that this particularly weak man still being able to command such a presence was always fascinating. But Jim Broadbent, I think, is doing the Lord's work in this film. Um, I think he's the, pretty much one of the only grounded characters who has to bridge, um, you know, the insanity, the theater's insanity, if you will, because we keep referencing it, of, of this world that he has to maintain, but also realizes the humanity and depth of what Satine is going through. And, um, and I don't think enough people speak about Jim Broadbent as an artist because he's pretty darn talented so any other thoughts about uh other performances in the film yes chuck and diane go ahead i really love the duke i thought he got a raw deal <laughs> i felt sorry for him at the end but i love richard roxburgh i mean sure. so i feel sorry for him and he didn't even sing i don't think no. <laughs> and obviously he's from australia so he's terrific when I realized he was playing the Duke, I was really surprised. <laughs> I was surprised. Yeah. Anyway. The old Chuck and Diane on Moulin Rouge. We, we, all we had to say was Richard Roxburgh. We were going to find Exactly. Um, it, it, always my favorite question. Um, I mean, we do have a stage version now, and we've cast it with Broadway names and musical theater names, of course. So we do have a reinterpretation of it. And the stage version of Moulin Rouge, as we're uh, wrapping up for the, has been in consideration from almost day one of this film. Film being conceptualized. You can go back as early as 2002 and Lerman talking about wanting to produce it on stage. And in particular, what was the most westernized version of the Moulin Rouge we had? Vegas. That was about the next best thing that we could do. So he wanted to develop a Vegas style show that was essentially much like Teatro Zanzani um, in concept of how do we bring this story onto the stage? There was conversations of Kidman and, and um, uh, McGregor were praising their roles. And so to be in, in, um, in development hell, as they would call it in uh, cinema for years upon years, um, to finally come out in you know the past couple of years um, speaks to how protected of a property it is. Um, but all that only to say, who else would we see in these roles if we had to refilm it today? Chris, go ahead. Well, now that we know from his multiple stage appearances that Jake Gyllenhaal can sing and sing very well, um, I mean, I've been in love with him since high school, but now that I know he's a bona fide music theater performer, Jake Gyllenhaal. I could see that. Absolutely. I think for Satine, Zendaya would be an amazing Satine. I mean, she played in The Greatest Showman, so the whole swing gives me that vibe. I think she'd look gorgeous and she could sing it really well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone else have other thoughts? We had a Gerard Butler from Amanda, which was great. Do we think he can redeem himself after Phantom of the Opera? 
Unpopular opinion. I don't think he was terrible. I that's not my favorite version of Phantom of the Opera, but that's a whole other conversation. But I was impressed. <laughs> that is a different Monday entirely. Right. <laughs> Anyone else have any other thoughts about who who would you throw in it? What's the name? She was in uh Emma Stone, I think. And she sang, I don't know. I just immediately thought of her for some reason. I think um, that is also a conversation for a different movie musical Monday based I, on her performance. I, I, La La Land. Uh, oh, I never saw La La Land. Yes. Uh James, go ahead. I saw just to add to that, I saw Emma Stone in Cabaret. Oh, sure. Um, and it was one of those things where she likes to talk through her songs. I can't say she was a singer, and I think she did a lot of that in La La Land too, where she's speaking with music behind her and occasionally will hold a note, but it was nothing that I said like, wow, Emma Stone can sing, especially when you had, you know, Natasha Richardson uh, originating as such a role, and, that, and she's really, really good at that. So I don't know if Emma Stone um, has the chops. <laughs> Well, and I wonder if that's another question for the film is that, you know, and people will always find it attracting. People will always find it um, more accessible is the vocal quality of it is, you know, was it I don't think so. But, you know, is it is there is there a world where we consider Milan Rouge because these these are all karaoke songs that we would go to? You know, is there something about hearing them not polished, not not musical theater, Broadway beltery um, in this film that does something to how we respond to it versus how we watch it on stage with someone like Karen Olivo reinterpreting it as a, you know, firework as a stage piece is that I think that's another conversation as Darylin so wonderfully demonstrated is that, you know, tone also affects how we listen to a, a song. And while I don't necessarily think that they were going that in depth with the music theory of Moulin Rouge, and that's a whole nother Monday, but is um, it, that I think that's also an interesting conversation is what do we do when we reinterpret pop songs through a musical theater lens um, in terms of vocal quality? I think for me personally, because the movie was so intricate and, and dramatic and all these other aspects, like wonderful dancing, wonderful fashion, wonderful cinematography, to me, if maybe if the, the movie was a little bit more toned down, the vocal quality wouldn't have bothered me. But because everything else was so extravagant, I wanted these people to be able to sing. And then when they didn't, I was just kind of like, they're in an elephant right now. Shouldn't they be like, belting? Shouldn't <laughs> they do something? You're in an elephant. Come on. You got diamonds all around you. Come on. Give me a little more. So I, don't know. I feel like if the, it was less, I wouldn't have noticed as much. That's fair. And, and I, I want, think, I want I that think, to pull I think that has something to do with the Broadway show too, because when everything's turned up to 10 for two and a half hours, there's nothing that's bringing you down. And you're sort of like, almost it all just becomes crazy noise. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to mention about this was it took me 20 years and me rewatching this movie to realize that the green fairy is Kylie Minogue. Yeah, I noticed that today too, yeah. It was one of those things where it's like, especially like, and that's I think the uh, anomaly, which could be a whole other show of Kylie Minogue, like she's revered around the world, but in America, she's known as like the locomotion woman from 30 years ago. Right. So it's like, here's this huge star and I didn't even know who it was in 2001. And then all of a sudden I'm watching, I'm like, that's Kylie Minogue, giving uh, Baz Luhrmann giving props to his Australian uh, family out there. 
Absolutely. Another fun, excuse me, fun little casting tidbit is that there was also a conversation that Courtney Love was going to be playing Satine at one point. Um, And while she didn't necessarily grace us with the presence of being in the film, she was part of the reason and a big influential part of why Smells Like Teen Spirit was allowed to be used in the film. Um, She was the one who helped get the rights for that. So. Darylin, as we're coming up on time, I have a, a, a twist version of the casting version of it, just because Lady Marmalade is such a big part of the Moulin Rouge uh, universe. What powerhouses do you want to hear reinterpret either that song or a Moulin Rouge number um, that we have access to today? Uh, four people. Mm, I think definitely Lil' Kim's rap has to go to Cardi B, obviously. <laughs> Obviously. Um, so we'll start there. As far as four other powerful, four or three stingers. I, I think, let, let's, let's just say three for time's sake. <laughs> I think one of them would have to be Ariana Grande. I think she's a great singer, especially when she enunciates. <laughs> I think she would be number one. Number two, I think, I want to say Zendaya again. I think she's great. Oh, no, I'm going to say Normani. Okay. Normani. And then I think... I think Lizzo would be good in there too. I, I, yes, Lizzo. I think yeah. the world needs a little bit more Lizzo. So as we're winding down, does anyone have any last minute thoughts about the film that they are dying to share with us? James, go ahead. I'll just throw this in because um, I just think that this conversation is really cool in the concept of the movie musical Mondays, just because of the fact that we've had like, hello dollies and we're going back and we'll go into the future but to do something that's relatively new and also to take the um, you know our movie musical like little book club here movie club to watch something that's relatively um new and is going to have songs that my people say oh my gosh like have no idea who nirvana is and i think that's sort of exciting about these so i just say you know thanks to everyone who was a part of it and thanks to porchlight and thanks to all of you for making my mondays without musical mondays at sidetrack a little more exciting <laughs> well, I know that this is also one of my favorite nights and I, I try to pop in as often as I can as of late, but, um, and I, this, this core crew of people, and if you're new to us, uh, thank you for joining, but this crew crew of people is that, you know, we've been, we've kind of started at the very beginning, which was a good place to start. And, you know, we're, we're branching out into what musical theater and the film combined is right now. So, on that note, I'm going to say thank you all. Um, Darylin, thank you so much for your insight and um, your wonderful vocal demonstration. Um, as, as Michael mentioned before, if you want more vocal pyrotechnics from this wonderful talent, um, you know, Broadway by the Decade is still available for streaming. Um, see, I can do commercials too. Um, and so, um, so, of course, and I just want to thank you so much, all of you, as usual, for sharing your thoughts on one of the most successful movie musicals of all time. So, Back to you, Michael. We hope you enjoyed this Movie Musical Monday podcast and that you'll join us live to participate in our next discussion. You'll find information about upcoming events on our website and how you can join in the conversation. Theaters across the country need your support now, more than ever. We hope you'll consider a donation to Porchlight Music Theater today. Just go to porchlightmusictheater.org. Until next time on Movie Musical Mondays, I'm Michael Weber. 